Hello everyone and welcome to the Greatest Games podcast on the Blizzard. My name is Mark Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and today we welcome back to the podcast John Bruin, football writer and contributor for The Guardian. Good to have you back, John. Well, good, glad to be back, Marcus. I hope you're well. <laughs> Very well. On today's pod, we go back to the FA Cup final from 1990 that ended Crystal Palace 3, Manchester United 3, with Manchester United winning the replay 1-0, of course. John, why have you chosen this match? Uh, well, I was there. That's that's a good start. It's the first <laughs> FA Cup final I attended. Um, it's obviously a key moment in the Alex Ferguson of Manchester United story. Um, and also, uh, just thinking back over this game, it's a reminder of just how different things were to attend football at that time. Um, uh, you know, I can maybe share a, a few personal memories of being at a game in which um, it was bedlam, quite frankly. This game was bedlam <laughs> and coming in and out of the the stadium was bedlam and uh, a reflection on how, how think things, things are the same, but they're very different, if you see what I mean, about, about, about attending matches. Obviously, we're at a point where people are, are returning to matches now. Um, but I personally watched this game uh, through the fence at Wembley, which was still there. Right, okay. Because I was in the cheap seats at the bottom. Uh, <laughs> I was sat with my mum. Uh, my mum took me along to this game. I was only 13 years old. Uh, and um, that's the last game she ever attended. Uh, now, my mum likes football, used to attend, used to go to Old Trafford in the 60s and early 70s, but she has never wanted to go back to football after that game. Now, I don't know if it was that it was a particularly poor game, but I think some of the antics of those around and the, the, the complete um, chaotic nature of, 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 of attending matches at that time, I mean, it, listen, you know, it, we're in a post Hillsborough world at that point. That was that had happened a year before, but um, uh, I don't think my mum has ever got over the sight of uh, fat net blokes in uh, paisley shirts. It was nineteen ninety. Remember, this was the time of Manchester. Mm. Um, deciding that they would use uh, the Wembley Terrace as it was. It just the seats had just been bolted on as a latrine. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was. You know, my mum's not the most delicate of people, but it was a certain point where she thought he's old enough to go to the games on his own now, and I will leave him there. And my dad couldn't attend for whatever reason. And uh, yeah, but thinking about the game as well, um, also uh, this is a game in which the anxiety of Manchester United to win this game is something that I still remember thirty-one years later, which is the utter, utter blind panic that. Manchester United fans went through that day. Um, now, of course, the key figure at this point is uh, Jim Layton, the goalkeeper, who had an absolute nightmare. And uh, But it was also at the point of that this mattered so much to Manchester United to get this win. And it mattered so much to Alex Ferguson. And that what happened in the aftermath of this game, of course, with the dropping of Jim Layton for the replay which Manchester United won, I think we all knew, even at that time, that Alex Ferguson was a ruthless man. But this was probably, I mean, to this day, uh, his most most ruthless piece of team selection of cutting someone dead to suit his own needs. We saw that many times over, over the next, uh, well, what would it be, 
23 years as, as Manchester United manager. But I do think that the cutting of Jim Layton, something that he said his uh, assistant Archie Knox, a man almost as fearsome as Sir Alex, <laughs> said he wouldn't have done. And I just think that, yeah, my memory of this game is just the complete panic whenever the ball went near Jim Layton um, and that Crystal Palace knew exactly where to put the ball and that was near Jim Layton. Yeah, Joe, can I ask you, you described going to the game and all that, was it easy to get tickets for an FA Cup final back then? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, we use uh, uh, some... <laughs> okay. Or should I not ask? <laughs> no, you can, you can, no, no, it's absolutely fine. Um, my, my father works in the uh, airline industry okay. and uh, the airline industry seems to be a rich source of tickets in those days because people... <laughs> If you work in the airline industry, a lot of people want to know you because they think they might get a free airline ticket out of you. And part of that relationship is, I think, getting tickets through. Um, in fact, I was going to put this towards the end of the pod, but I will tell you that we did actually get tickets for the replay, which I couldn't go to uh, for, for one reason or another. So the tickets were passed to two family friends of ours, um, Mick and Richard, and they went to the uh, – it was on the Thursday, and they sat, they got – Whereas we'd sat right at the front, looking through the Wembley fence, uh, had to stand on the seats for quite a lot of the games to actually see anything. Uh, they were actually in the Royal Box uh, through this ticket connection. And uh, they were sat next to Roy Hattersley, no less. <laughs> and sat two rows in front of them was Jim Layton. There you go. In his club suit, looking miserable as sin. Yeah. Well, um, Jonathan, the, the, I mean, the first game in particular was obviously a very entertaining 3-3 draw. What do you remember of this game? Um, well, I, th- I think there's sort of two key narratives come together at the end of this season. So the, 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 there's obviously the Manchester United story that um, yeah, famously the third round, the, the suspicion that Alex Ferguson would have been sacked had they lost to Nottingham Forest, and they, they get away with it. Um, because you know, he'd come in in... in um, the autumn of '86, and they they struggled. Uh, they did, yeah, they come second, but they hadn't won a trophy. And at least on the Ron Atkinson, for all the other problems, they had won the FA Cup in '83 and '85. Um, so there's that sense of, of you know, John talks about the panic, but the the sense that United needed this for salvation. But I think there's actually something wider than that that goes back to the semi-finals and the two semi-finals: Crystal Palace beating Liverpool four three. United drawing 3-3 with Oldham and then winning the replay. Those two games, I would, I mean, you could make a case for France v. Switzerland and, and uh, Spain-Croatia in, in, in the year has just finished. Mm. But I can't remember another day of two games in the same competition having the same drama, quality, excitement. And you've you got to put that in context that this were, these were the first semifinals since Hillsborough. It was a year after Hillsborough. It was the first time the FA Cup semi-finals had ever been on the same day. Uh, the FA felt it was against the spirit of the competition. The teams in the second semi-final knew who they were going to play, um, which yeah, something we wouldn't even consider now. Uh, they're both televised, which is, has never happened before. Um, and there was a, sort of a real doubt. Kind of, can people cope with two football matches on the same day? Uh, so they put the East Enders omnibus in between to try and break it up. <laughs> but that, that, that day, I, I mean, I, just, I remember um, I'd, I'd come in from church. So I missed about the first five minutes of Liverpool Palace. And that game was absolutely stunning. 
And I was supposed to go out um, to... If I tell, if there is a football connection here, actually, uh, you know Stevie Chalmers, who scored the winner for Celtic in the 67 European Cup final? His cousin, David, was married to a woman who was a good friend of my man. And it was their... Uh, what wedding would it have been? Silver wedding anniversary? Yeah, silver. I guess silver wedding. That day, I was meant to be going with my parents to that. And I sort of dug my heels in to watch United v Oldham. And... Uh, <laughs> was warmly vindicated by a <laughs> by by a second sensational game. Yeah. Well, so uh, so, so my, the wider point being yeah. that had those been two terrible games of football, had there been further outbreaks of, or had there been outbreaks of violence or or mm-hmm. some other terrible thing had happened, I, I don't know if football would have bounced back in the way that it did in the night. Because I think this was a very important. A uh, couple of weeks in, in football's rebirth, and of course, you then have the World Cup, Italy '90, Gaza's tears, all that. But this is sort of the foundations for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was going to say. I mean, yeah, this game cannot be considered without those two semi-finals. And uh, we stayed over um, night before uh, uh, some family friends in wonderful Slough, and uh, got the train um, to Wembley. And what I remember was uh, when we got onto the tube, Palace and United fans got on at the same time and you begin to think, oh, hang on, you know, this is still the era of sort of hooliganism, really. And there's a mass loving between the United and Palace fans because Palace had beaten the Scousers. And uh, it was, yeah, and, and just this, uh, you know, and I, I believe it or not, I was I was quite small for my age and I'm, I'm in this tube and the whole place is bouncing, but it was a celebration of, beating Liverpool and the two teams being there. But that's actually quite a key moment as well in terms of the shift of the balance of power. Yes. That, and I'm, I'm sure we'll do that Palace-Liverpool game at some point. Uh, so we, we won't go into too much detail. But the way Palace bombarded Liverpool and the way, was it Hansen and Hussein, the two centre-backs? Yes, it was, yeah. Just could not handle it. And suddenly you saw this fragility in Liverpool which you'd never seen before. Uh, and then... You know, people moving away from the back four, the, the end of the back pass law, sorry, the introduction of the back pass law, so mm-hmm. the end of uh, having the back pass as, as a get out, Liverpool having to change how they played, Liverpool taking a long time emotionally, psychologically to to um, come to terms with Hillsborough, not really reacting to the new financial circumstances. So, you know, that day, that the, the semi finals, although you'd never have known it at sort of 6 pm that day, but it was a sort of key moment in Liverpool's, the beginning of their decline and the beginning of United's rise. Because if United had lost to Oldham, which they easily could have done, yes, you know, they, they got away with it. Now. You know, yet another Mark Hughes equaliser. <laughs> what a goal, yeah. They, they got away with it. Then, then would United have been the team to step into the breach? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. So ultimately, we've got to thank Alan Pardew for this sort of event in football. <laughs> well, Alan Pardew's, I, I, I was about to say, I, you know, we, we don't want to talk too much about the Palace semi-final. Alan Pardew's interview after that game <laughs> is one of the least gracious interviews in victory you'll Fantastic. ever see. Yeah. He <laughs> is incredibly annoyed at the temerity of any interviewer to ask him questions. Mm. You, well, you doubted us. Yes, Alan, you lost 9-0 to the mm. same opponents <laughs> earlier this season. <laughs> the team that yeah. went to win, on to win the league, fairly convincingly. Yeah. They put 11 goals past you without concession in yeah, two yeah, league yeah. games this season. There is a reason why you were not favoured for this game. Mm. Well, I, I, yeah, sorry, John. I was going to. I was going to say actually. Uh, I wanted to talk about Palace actually, and and Steve Coppel. Um, and 
obviously, unless you're a Crystal Palace fan, the, the, the narrative of this game is that it's Alex Ferguson's first trophy. But I do think Palace have forgotten and what they actually achieved at that time, which was, OK, not... I wouldn't say we're going to look back on it as like the highest point of English football, certainly on a club level. But Steve Coppel was only 34 at this time. He even yeah. had hair. <laughs> and um, he constructed a team built in... It was something of a 1980s model. I think it probably owed something to the Graham Taylor, Howard Wilkinson model, of which I would suggest that Crystal Palace were probably the fittest team in the league around that time, certainly the following season when they came third in the league. And uh, also the ability to... Uh, you know, you've got players who were journeyman professionals, Let's, if, if we're being slightly impolite about it. You know, Gary O'Reilly had played for Tottenham and had dropped down uh, to play for Palace. Um, and you've got players like Jeff Thomas that have come up from lower leagues, from crew. And then you've got an unearthing of two strikers in Mark Bright and Ian Wright, who I'm sure we'll talk, talk about later on. But this was a team that was very difficult to play against. Steve Coppel um, was one of the brightest young managers around. And, you know, you, you might say he perhaps didn't quite achieve what we might have expected at that point in his managerial career. This was probably the high point, certainly the following year. but. Um, I don't think if you speak to Palace fans of a certain generation, they would ask for any more from this team because I do think that, that you know, my, my memories of meeting and hearing Palace fans that day, this was the greatest day in mm. their lives too. Well, then they've still yet to win that major trophy, Crystal Palace, of course. We came mightily close uh, in this final. But you're right, I mean, they were promoted. They finished 15th uh, on 48 points. But Manchester United finished 13th, Jonathan, on 48 points. <laughs> Seldom do we see an FA Cup final keenly contested between the 13th and the 15th uh, position sides in the league. Yeah, I mean, that I think is is indicative of just how much United were struggling. So, yeah, Ferguson had taken over um, in 86. He'd inherited a squad that was pretty unfit, had a very unhealthy drinking culture, and it had taken him a long time to, to weed that out. Uh, so in this squad, little quiz for you, John, in this squad, one player hmm. remained who'd started Fergie's first game against Oxford. It was. Oh, uh, it wasn't Brian Robson because he would have been because he would have been injured. Would have been Neil Webb. No, 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 no. I was just—is this the first name that came to mind? Have I tell you he came off the bench uh, in the in the first game? Oh, Clayton. Clayton Blackmore. Sunbed himself. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a so great... I mean, that tells you how you know how huge yes. the overhaul of players was. And of course, the, you know, the five players had come in in the summer of 89. Um, and, and it's a the Pallister in Sphelan, Webb, Wallace. Uh, and you know, some of the, those stories of you know, Gary Pallister talking about um, you know, basically being bored out of his mind, staying in, uh, sorry, I've forgotten the name of the hotel, uh, in Manchester Piccadilly, the one that looks like an enormous concrete cash register. Um, it became a McCure. Well, I can't remember the, what it was the, back the, it's, it's called the Piccadilly Hotel, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And he, yeah George, George best hangout of the of the seventies, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, he he basically had two hours a day training, and then spent the rest of his time there. So he spent the afternoons in the pub and the the bookies because he had nothing else to do. Yeah, and yeah, you know, he was eating in eating fast food because he had no way cooking for himself and didn't want to sit in restaurants by himself. So yeah, again, just in terms of player welfare. You know, of course, players took a long time to settle in. Sorry, John, you were. Going yeah, to... I was going to say. I mean, like actually, Jonathan makes a key point, which is that this was 
Ferguson's Ferguson's dig, you know, ahead of this season, uh, which started with a four-one win against Arsenal, fans, United fans' hopes were very high because of the spending that had gone on. There was the Michael Knighton takeover that never was. Well, again, that's astonishing. That's this season. Yes, yeah. yes, and there was an injection of cash uh, in which I think uh, you know the, the club went into the red a little bit. Um, and you know those five players that, that that Jonathan mentions, and all of them started. You know, um, now that McFeelan is a sort of permanently shorted uh, part of the bench, it's difficult to recall that he was actually and he played in this game as a sort of right winger. Um, and then one player that I think uh, is forgotten sadly because of what befell him. He's, he suffers from multiple sclerosis these days. Danny Wallace. Now. When I was at this game, I I was introduced. Uh, you know, I was I have been to a reasonable amount of football this time. I was reintroduced to the uh, the concept of the frustrating winger. Now, my memory of this game is that every time Danny Wallace got the ball, he would lose it. But actually, watching it back, Danny Wallace plays a key part in all three goals. Um, you know, the, the accusation was at the time that United signed the the wrong Wallace because, of course, Rod went to. Uh, uh, Leeds and was a very good player for them, um, and it didn't work out for Danny Wallace. We know now one of the, well the reason why is he became seriously ill, um, and you know soon enough uh, United would be known for wingers with Lee Sharp, Ryan Giggs, Andrei Kachelskis, but he played a key part in this game, and he's a sort of forgotten hero. Uh, he did a great job. He did a great job that well, just like Mark Robbins in that. Uh, that third round game, I think Danny Wallace went a considerable way to saving Alex Ferguson's job. Yeah, and Neil Webb on the other wing. I mean, not not a winger in any sense, but playing wide on the right with with Phelan sort of going outside him. Yes, he's he plays a key part in two of the goals, and he was a player who very quickly well yeah, fell out of favour with well, his uh, lack of pace and his injuries. And... Well, well, Neil Webb had, uh, had snapped his Achilles tendon uh, in in an England game, the nil nil uh, against Sweden. The Terry Butcher game, you'll all remember that for the, the bleeding headband, um, and came back towards the end of that season, scored in the semi-final against against Oldham. Uh, but I think it's fair to say, and I, I, I think Neil Webb would admit this himself, was never quite the same player. Because if you remember the player at Portsmouth and Nottingham Forest, he was a player that was often getting on the end of things. He had quite a decent mm. goal record. Um, by this point, he was deep-lying, mostly because he couldn't run forward. Um, and uh, he unfortunately had problems with his fitness, problems with his weight, and never quite trained on. And, you know, he is a sort of early casualty of that Fergie ruthlessness, which was, this guy's no use to me, and he went back to Forest a couple of years later. Um, and uh, funny enough, um, Neil Webb's uh, wife at the time was a, was a, in the media, Shelley Webb, and uh, her and Sir Alex exchanged some words through the media <laughs> at the time. Um, yes, but... Um, yeah, so you you have these players that are almost forgotten in the in in the Ferguson story because of what followed later, but without them, there would have been no Ferguson story. We probably just we should explain the Michael Knighton thing to people who. Don't well, yeah, know yeah, yeah. Well, good that luck. Extraordinary incident. And so those Michael who Knighton, don't know it won't believe it. I suppose. Yeah, yeah far away. But it, it, the story gets weirder as it goes on. Hmm. But he he's um he's he's a businessman uh, who. Had been an ex-player, I think that's yeah. Had 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 a, a fledgling career or something. A, a fledgling career, you know, one of these guys that 
I could have been a contender, but I had a bad knee injury as, a, as a, you know, one of those people. Yeah. Uh, in 1976, uh, he believed that while driving with his wife, he, he'd seen a, U, a UFO. Um, uh, he, he wants to buy United uh, that, that opening day against Arsenal that John mentioned. He's in the, well, not just in the director's box, he, he's on the pitch before kickoff, does some keepy ups, lashes the ball into the net to great cheers. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, his version of the story is that uh, the, essentially the, the uh, let me get this right, the Maxwell press turned on him. Um, other people suggest he's never had the, the, the available finance. Yes. Uh, but we're only actually talking about £10 million. I mean, obviously a huge amount of money to any normal person and, and even more back then. But in the context of modern football, it just seems like buttons. Um, but he, he, then, um, he then ends up becoming owner of Carlisle, mm-hmm. which is quite a step down from Manchester United, but which maybe suggests just what finance he did have available. Uh, they got promoted twice under him and relegated twice, the second of those relegations after he decided to take over as head coach. Um, the very first job I had in, in football journalism, uh, my, my, my first attempt to interview somebody was Michael Knighton. Wow. And I'd been out on the lash one night. This is when I was still a student at the Durham doing my master's. Uh, and I was, I was in bed at home when he rang, because no mobile phones. He rings the home phone. My man answers the phone about half nine in the morning. And uh, it's Michael Knight on the phone for me to explain to a hungover me for half an hour why he doesn't want to do the interview. Which is a <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, the interview wouldn't have taken half an hour. Mm. So uh, that was all very odd. But then do you know what became of him after, after Carlisle? Go on. He became a poet yes. and a sculptor. Yeah. And he had a series of sculptures in 2006, a series of sculptures of the crucifixion, or maybe artworks, I think paintings of the crucifixion. Exhibited at King's College, Cambridge, under the name Congthin Pearlmick, which is an anagram of Michael Knighton PR. <laughs> Fantastic. See, well, my only connection with, with Michael Knight was that I used to play for a team when I grew up in Edinburgh. Uh, and he was either the brother or the brother in law of the coach. Uh, and therefore, we used to play in Carlisle United kit. Wow. Ah, nice. Anyway, you see, good old Eddie Stobart. Anyway. Everything connects. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we go for a quick break. And after that, we will talk about the match itself. See you in a moment. Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard. So then, uh, gentlemen, um, to Wembley for for the match. Yes, so uh, the the semi-finals were brilliant. And then the final would would live up to it. Because often, John, the semi-final... Is better than the final. It's a, the final can be a bit of a cagey affair, but it, it wasn't to be this time. No, and, and I think I think around this time uh, the FA Cup final sort of reached its apex. It was still very important, and there were some great games. The one the following year uh, between uh, Forest and Tottenham was also a great game, and then it started. And then actually, when Sunderland got in the FA Cup, yeah, final, we were th- 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 <laughs> things started things started going awry at that point. Yeah, this is that that is important true. if they can get here. You know. Yeah, yeah, but um, yes, uh, it started. Uh, I, I was actually listening back to the radio commentary of this game uh, uh, with uh, Mike Ingham, um, Alan Green, and of course the legendary Jimmy Armfield. Uh, you know, giving his unique insight, and Jimmy Armfield was the greatest of co-commentators. It has to be said on radio. And, and he, a lovely man, and, genuinely and a, lovely man. Yes, absolutely. And 
He makes a very good point early on in the, in the commentary, talking about the sort of star-studded midfield that we've discussed. You know, Neil Webb, um, but Paul Ince was involved. I do think Paul Ince played fullback in this game, um, and uh, you know Brian Robson. Brian Robson, of course, as was habitual, uh, had had a season wrecked by injury, and he's saying that United were producing nothing from midfield. Palace were going about their game pretty in, in the style that. Uh, had, had won them the game against Liverpool, making it very difficult for United to play their game. Um, and then, of course, Palace scored their first goal um, through uh, future uh, fighting top pundit Gary O'Reilly. I used to find him quite funny on that, actually. Um, and uh, a, a ball in from, I'm going to say, forgotten man, Phil Barber. Uh, it was, a, it was a, something of a dummy run by Andy Gray, the other Andy Gray. Um, and what a hit, son, by uh, Phil Barber, who loves it in. And, of course, and here we have the first demonstration yeah. of the dissolution of James Layton, <laughs> uh, in which he completely misreads it, flaps. Now, I-, I watched the Ferguson documentary recently, the, the one that's just come out, uh, made by his son, and they frequently refer to Jim Layton as Big Jim. Now, they talk a lot about goalkeepers making themselves big. Now, Jim Layton, I think was probably about 5'11", 6 foot, looked about 5'2", during this game. <laughs> and uh, he flaps. Steve Bruce uh, it tries to coof the ball away, ends up sort of hoofing it into the roof of the net. Utter chaos. Uh, and in, in, over in the United end, in this corner behind the fence, blind panic sets in. Um, I was listening actually to to Lee Martin, the hero of the uh, the replay, talking about how at that point United were used to conceding first in games and used to conceding from uh, from dead ball situations. So again, uh, we should pay tribute to Steve Coppel, who one of the good things about Crystal Palace in that era is that they were a very adept dead ball team, and uh, in an era perhaps where coaching wasn't quite as rigorous, it was quite clear they worked through those scenarios uh, particularly strong. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's not just the, the thing that strikes me in retrospect as being really weird. It isn't so much how Leighton loses it in this game. You can see his mind just going. Yes, and there's, I think there's obviously a seed there that he it had been United, going for a while, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think United must have seen how Palace, yeah, just destroyed Liverpool in that semi final yes. on set plays. So they must have focused on that. And I wonder if if when you're starting to wobble whether that then just makes you more nervous. But the thing that I find really odd is that Ferguson signed him in the first place because they didn't have no, they didn't a get particularly on. happy relationship with Aberdeen. That the famous, uh, it's the 84 Scottish Cup final, or was it the 83 Scottish Cup final? I think, yes. I think it might when, be. When Aberdeen beat yeah. Rangers in extra time with the Eric Black goal. And Ferguson's famous post-match rant, having won the game about what a disgrace he is and how he didn't deserve to win it. But in 90 minutes, he goes up to Jim Layton and goes, you are Rangers' best player. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and then even worse in '85, yes. in the World Cup qualifier when Jock Steen yeah, dies on the touchline. When um, yeah, that day, Jim Layton loses a contact lens in the first half and daren't admit it because Fergie's in the dugout, and yeah, he 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 daren't it sort of admit that that the the, the the he's lost his contact lens, hasn't brought any spare. So he's going around in his World Cup qualifier only able to see out of one eye. 
It's madness. But I find it with Leighton's career was really interesting without getting too sidetracked because this obviously had such an effect on him because of what you're saying. I mean, he was, what, 31, maybe 32 by the time this cup final came yeah. around. And then for the next few years, Leighton's career, he was, I think he went on loan and he was the odd appearance here and there. And you think, well, that's probably him winding down. And then, of course, he goes to Hibs and has a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of an Indian summer and gets back into the Scottish national team and, and blah, 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 blah. But for those sort of years post this final, you could maybe argue. I mean, the thing is, he obviously was a good keeper because you, Clearly, can't, you he, can't win the league title in Scotland in the early 80s and win the Cup Winners' Cup without being mm. a decent keeper. But he's just one of those people. I guess maybe it's because of the generation we are. He looks like a goalkeeper from the previous generation. Yeah. That he's not a big physical, mm. yeah, he's not a Schmeichel um, shape of goalkeeper. Well, he's he always sort of, looked old as well, Jim Lane. Yeah, but he, he, he is the sort of the classic good shot stopper. And mm-hmm. you know that probably the last of that breed would be Shea Given or someone like that. In which I th- I remember Jim Layton making an unbelievable save from Alan McInerney when McInerney was playing for Aston Villa, mm-hmm. and he, his reflexes were genuinely good. But I mean, it's quite odd to consider how often teams scored from crosses in that era. Yet Ferguson had a goalkeeper who really couldn't deal with a cross ball, and also considering that the two players playing in front of him were Gary Pallister and Steve Bruce, who among their chief assets, you have to say, mm. heading the ball, they were quite good at that. Yeah, although they weren't the Bruce and Palliser they would become. I mean, Palliser no. particularly took a while to, to settle. Absolutely. And even this goal, I wouldn't say he's to blame for it, but he doesn't do great. I no. mean, the ball goes in off his sort of a back of his shoulder on neck that O'Reilly's header yeah. hits him and that's why it loops up, which makes it look worse for everybody. But it, it's it's not the most... And, and, you know, the... Uh, which goal is it? Palliser's second goal. I think Palliser's quite badly at fault. But but yes, I mean both of them are within a year or two have, have become yeah you know, supreme defenders kind of yeah impossible yeah. to beat in the end. Well it, and yeah absolutely uh, not that long after that first goal of course Manchester United scored a goal of their own and it was a, it was a cross and a header and um, slightly scrappy but Brian Robson uh, went down on the score sheet John as getting that equal yeah well and, and this was this was. I suppose this was towards the end of the time that Brian Robson was the complete saviour of Manchester United. Brian Bury <laughs> took to the field and he, he had scored in the semi-final. Again, having not played for three months, this is Robbo. Patch him up, send him out there. He'll get you a goal. <laughs> he will put his head in situations where people wouldn't put someone else's head. You know, and just <laughs> just a, an incredible competitor. Um, You have to, I mean, listen, those those players that played with him, We'll often talk about Brian Robson being the best player they played alongside. Um, and fans of a certain era, maybe a little bit older than me, will talk about Robson being the best midfielder that United ever had. And, you know, I was certainly a, a huge admirer of him, but I do think, you know, what came later with Roy Keane and so on probably uh, superseded that. But he was such a player for the big occasion and the big goal and, and a sort of rabble-rousing way of pulling the team back into big occasion. Something maybe akin to Steven Gerrard, I think you'd probably say. Um, but this header, again, Danny Wallace involved. And then the the classic downward header that gives the goalkeeper something to worry about, not least because it comes off John Pemberton. And uh, it looks a little awkward for Nigel Martin, but I don't think you can really blame him. And yes, of course, uh, memories from the stadium, more bedlam. I mean, this was incredible. Of course, remember, we were stood on the seats which were these sort of benches, essentially. And uh, 
we all had to hang on for dear life. Not so. so you up. were at that end of the ground or the other end? I think we were at this end. Yes. I, it, it's all a blur. It's all a blur. Yeah. I wasn't even <laughs> drinking then. You know, it was just. <laughs> I should hope not. Everyone else was, but I was not. Um, you know, maybe I had a nice mug of tea or something like that. But yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah it was. It was just absolute chaos and uh you know and but yeah it was you know brian robson had this sort of superhero status even if he was patched up and barely able to run uh, and his refueling perhaps didn't assist his recovery in the way that we might expect these days but what a player he was on occasions like this Mm. Uh, Jonathan, so I probably should have said before we start talking about it, well, Manchester United expected to win this game. I mean, I sort of assume they are just because of the history and whatnot. But as I say, it was 13th versus 15th. I think they probably were, but not in the same way they were in... Um... What, under Van Hal? <laughs> yeah, which, which year was that? 2017? 16. Under Van Hal? 16. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they would be favourites just because they were United. and Yeah, they had won the Cup twice in the previous seven years. I mean, they... Mm-hmm. They're clearly a bigger team. They clearly spent a lot more money on on players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I, I think we we talked a bit about this a bit when we talked about the the Arsenal Luton League Cup final, yeah, which was the previous year, or was it? No, it was eighty eight, wasn't it? Eighty eight, yeah, eighty eight, uh, where they finished very close in the table. Um, but obviously, Arsenal are big favourites because they're Arsenal and Luton are Luton. Well, here it is still United v Palace. Mm. Um, so I think it still would have been. Regardless, the shock had had Palace won, but people were very very aware of United's vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. um, and, and and the fact that they, you know, yeah, you know, Palace wanted to win it. United needed to win it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, if we can sort of jump forward perhaps to the second half, it's Mark Hughes who scores uh, his first of the day, Manchester United second, and it's fair to say he liked the big occasion, John. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, we talk about um, Brian Robson as, the, you know, the superhero, the warrior. Mm. Well, <laughs> as, as he as he ebbed away, Mark Hughes became that player, really. Um, you know, obviously, uh, he would score a perhaps even greater goal four years later in the semi-final against Oldham. Um, and, of course, in, in the Cup Winners' Cup the following year as well. Mark Hughes, you know, the, what what was that phrase? A scorer of great goals, not a great goal scorer, was invented for him. That actually undersells what a good player Mark that Hughes is. Such harsh, isn't it? it well, Mark Hughes, you know, he wouldn't. He's okay, but by no means prolific. Uh, but he he won the PFA Player of the Year award twice, and the reason for that was because no defender liked playing against Mark Hughes. Because I don't think, in my well, near forty years of watching football these days, there's ever been a more awkward customer playing up front who also was an incredibly skillful player as well. You know, the ball went up to him, it stuck, and his, let's put it, sizable rump and uh, <laughs> Chris Hoy-style thighs, you know, would hold off defenders, play the ball. He was more than a goal scorer, but he did score goals when it really mattered for United, and he was that heroic figure. And it, it, again, um, something of a lost figure for United. Uh, uh, and certain people, people maybe a bit younger than me, might not recall Mark Hughes as such a hero because, you know, he left the club in 95 in disputed circumstances. Then he went to manage City and he's often made it clear that he didn't really have much affection for United. And he certainly didn't have much affection for uh, Sir Alex, with whom he had a difficult relationship. But I think uh, when on, in the retrospectives, uh, Sir Alex will always reflect on what an important player Mark Hughes was. 
Mm, yeah, I would say that perhaps they would shake hands and make up, but that sometimes causes problems with Mark. <laughs> yes, as well, indeed. It? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yes, it, um, but I mean, he's, he was a you know he's sort of famous for his bollies, but he was just a great yeah great strike of a ball first time. So I mean, this is a slightly odd sort of scruffy goal that it starts off quite neatly down the right with Neil Webb sort of doing a very very slow sort of shuffle into the box. Yeah, that was Neil Webb. Bo- yeah, <laughs> it sort of bobs about a bit, and then Andy Thorne goes to clear it and just smacks it straight into Neil Webb, and it deflects across goal. Uh, and there's Hughes at the back post, but the ball's spinning like anything, and somehow he slams it first time about a foot inside the post. It's an incredible finish. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. When, as you say, you might have to wait a little bit for a Mark Hughes goal, although I don't want to undersell him, as as you said, John. But but it's usually worth the wait. I think when. Oh, absolutely! Uses, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, a brilliant player. About to lace one. Uh, I could mention United two-one up, uh, and not long after that, Steve Coppel looks to his bench. Yes, and 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 we know that um, that that the Brighton right formed a, a great partnership for Crystal Palace, which any Palace fan of a certain age will remember very very affectionately. Uh, but Ian Wright comes off the bench and 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 changes the the, the fortunes for Crystal Palace in this game. Why, why did Wright not start? He John? he'd actually. Uh, Broken his leg twice that season. It was injury, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hairline, hairline fractures of the, yeah. the tibia. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah, he yeah. played four games. I think they say on the commentary he played four of the previous 22 games he could have done for Palace. But yeah. I, I wonder if, in a strange way, it did them a favour because if you'd had right and bright available, could you have played that five man midfield? Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure you would have done because how, how can you leave one of them out? You can't. Um, so obviously, you know. You would rather have a fully fit Ian right there, but on the other hand, it did allow them to, to yeah, to, to to pack the centre midfield, mm-hmm. and that probably helped them in the long run. Then you could suddenly unleash him with what twenty one minutes to go, and the the the, the force, yeah, you know, his impact when he comes on, oh, it's phenomenal. Well, yeah, what you say, unleash. I can't think of a player more suited to that word, unleash, than mm-hmm. Ian Wright. If you've left Ian Wright on the bench and he wants to prove something, particularly in a game like that, <laughs> you know he's going to give it a good go, don't you? And mm. um, I think actually at the time, people talk about this as, as Ian Wright's breakthrough, of course, like two goals in FA Cup final. Of course it is. But his talent was known. I mean, you know, for those of us who would listen to Sport on 2 coming back from matches or whatever, you know, you would hear Wright and Bright regularly, you know, would score for, for Palace and you knew what a good combination they were. And unfortunately, you know, that, that that season in the the first division was ruined by injury for, for Ian Wright. And yet he'd come up to the to the first division as their star man. And in fact, it, it more fallen to Mark Wright to score the goals for him. And then, yeah, he announced himself. And yeah, again, what yeah, memories, suddenly he sets off. Um, and uh, as Jonathan said, uh, Gary Pallister perhaps won't be too happy to look back on his... Well, I'm not sure Phelan will be either because he just sort no. of brushes Phelan off yes. and then a very sort of apparently straightforward jink inside and there's Palliser on his arse yeah. and suddenly it's him against the... Uh, uh, up, up against water. The Jim immaterial Layton. Jim Layton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> old, I mean, you can't really blame him for that one. So I mean, no, you can't, but I just... I, I sort of... It's one of those occasions where yeah, you have no doubt once Wright's in that position. There is no way Jim Layton is saving that. No, no, no. And, we, and everyone knew it. And but the person that knew of, it the most, Jim Layton. Well, Jim, well, he had the best view. But I think with, <laughs> with, when Ian Wright gets the, as you say, and jinx inside, he creates that that space. You know, as you say, those who knew him knew the quality that he 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 brought. You know, he was he was chomping at the bit to get on. 
And it's just one of those inevitable things in football where yeah. you see, and you just see the force of that inevitability bursting through and you go, yeah, of course. And of course, when, when he scored the celebration that you're so pumped up and suddenly it's 2-2 and all to play for, no doubt your uh, anxiety levels uh, went up a fair few notches. It, it was incredible, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and the thing is, I suppose, you know, I'd sort of known what to expect with Ian Wright and when that happened, yeah, and, you know, of course, you stare. You know, United is staring into the abyss of an embarrassment, and uh, of course, they've got ten men on the pitch, and the one that's missing is a goalkeeper. You know, it's really, it's oh. it, it, poor Jim, but it, but that that was the case, you know, and it 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 really, um, it just felt like a doomsday scenario, really. Um, but you know, uh, extra time beckoned. Well, we had Mike Phelan hitting the crossbar. Yes. Uh, well, Mike Phelan actually was a master of hitting the crossbar because at that time, <laughs> I don't know if you recall this, uh, his one and only appearance for England, I think, was in the build-up to the World Cup, and he actually hit the crossbar in that as well and then never was never granted an England shirt again. Now, I think that's possibly, when you consider the other midfielders England had at the time, that's possibly on merit, but, you know, poor old Mike. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and into extra time, and, and extra time wasn't very old, Jonathan. And Palace go three to up, and it's it's that man Ian right again. Uh, yeah, close range against uh, poor old Jim. Okay, close range is, is <laughs> undersells it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. John Salago down by the corner flag pings across over, mm. and it it's, it looks for all the world like he's slightly overhit it, and suddenly Ian right lunges in, extends a right boot, and lashes into the into the roof of the net. Yeah. Um. So it's it's a. Yeah, it's an astonishing finish. Um, and and the only thing you'd say, I guess, from a Palace point of view, is they, they got it too early. They could have, yeah, yeah they, they needed yeah. it either sort of three minutes earlier, so they were still in in a normal time, or they could have done with another quarter of an hour having passed. So you didn't have 28 minutes of United yeah, hammering at them. Yeah, I was, it was from a Palace point of view, it's absolutely phenomenal. Again, Ian Wright, John, just, it's that sort of power. And and sort of guile as well, because as Jonathan says, you know, it was it was a great finish to sort of nip in there and and do that. Well, he 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 read the flight of the ball, and I think yeah. we know who didn't. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, 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 don't there will be some sympathy for Jim in a bit. Don't worry. Yeah, but, I tried earlier. Yeah, but but um, you know, his autobiography's called In the Firing Line. <laughs> there you go. There you oh go. no! But I mean, the thing is, I, I think. I think the thing is, as I said, um, we became used to Ian Wright scoring those goals on a weekly basis. He was such a spectacular goal scorer. Yeah. I mean, who would you compare him to now? I think the player that I compare him to now is actually Jamie Vardy. Sort of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, well, similarly came into the game late as well, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, but did similar... That carefree attitude, not, not much respect for anybody, in a good way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And just, you know, will score spectacular goals, will take things on, mm. believes in himself. Yep. Sometimes he might look like the touch isn't on, but he will still keep going and going and going. And I tell you what, when he does, when he did score goals, no one enjoyed themselves more than Ian Wright. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. a drug for him, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and Palace were, were what seven minutes away from from winning that that trophy, but it was that man, Mark Hughes. John, who uh, spared United's uh, blushes on the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mark Robbins had come on the usual saviour, but. Um, if you watch the game back, Mark Robbins barely got a touch. Um, and uh, yes, Mark Hughes, a class finish this time. Uh, and that man, Danny Wallace, uh, 
the aforementioned uh, plagued the ball through. And a couple of years later, uh, by which time I graduated to actually being able to go to the game with my friends, um, there was a discussion. I was on the Stratford end. There was a discussion of of Danny Wallace, and me and my mate were fairly dismissive of him. And uh, a uh, let's put a refreshed gentleman turned to us and <laughs> reminded us of how good Danny Wallace had been in that game. And that sort of, I suppose, always stuck with me. But yes, as he pointed out, he was the guy that played it through to Yuzi, as you as you have to call him, uh, to equalise. And yeah, and um, as you said before, uh, Mark Hughes. Put in the position, great finisher. And uh, that was pretty much it, really. And it was a feeling of relief. United did push on a little bit more, but uh, I did feel that... Uh, and it felt, actually, at that point, like a draw was a, a pretty fair result. I don't think that's fair to say. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about that goal is it's a really good run for you. It's really good oh, yeah. to outrun. Um, but it's, I don't know. It's, sort of, it's a sort of run and goal you... Seems to have died out of football now, but uh, I guess it's because Wallace is is sort of moving through a, a, a semi vacant midfield, which you wouldn't, yeah. you know, with pressing, you just don't really get. And that allows him to slow, which allows Hughes to make that run across his path and then to read the pass yeah. through to him. And so, you know, Hughes is sort of the the angle of the finish is taking it back, you know, across the angle of, 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 of the run he's just made. Yeah, it's quite an odd thing when uh, you look back at FA Cup finals, they go to replays, because I, I don't think a, an audience nowadays would would, that would be in favour of that. Of course, it's been so long. But this goes to a replay. And again, like what, what, what is the atmosphere like when, you're, when, when, when leaving the ground, John, after a 3-3 in a great game like that? I mean, you said beforehand there was a bit of a loving with Palace. And, yeah, and I, I, I don't remember there being any... It was all pretty much, you know, well, see you on Thursday type of thing. It was all, <laughs> it was all pretty convivial. Um mm-hmm. You know, we ran into a few people that we knew and it was, oh, well, we didn't lose. I mean, that was mm. the point. I mean, um, I, when I got into school on the Monday, I was roundly mocked for the fact that my team had drawn three all with Crystal Palace. Uh, I think not that replicating a scene, I think, that's in Nick Hornby's um, fever pitch. In oh, fact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then obviously we got our revenge on the Friday morning when, you know, Lee Martin did the business uh, in, in the replay. Um, but yeah, it 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 felt like a fair result. And when I watched Match of the Day that night, you know, re- trying to relive the occasion, um, it seemed like a fair result. And I remember um, years later, uh, I actually had a, a story tape, which was Steve Bruce's uh, "The Making of Champions," uh, and this was a, a regular companion of mine. Uh, and has he written it? No, it's it's well. No, no Serbian war criminals or no, no. It was before before he became an acclaimed fiction writer. Um, it <laughs> it was, it was him just talking through you know the, the famous days. I think it cuts off the, the double in nineteen ninety four or maybe the, the title the year before. And it's him just talking through, and 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 he actually he makes a good point, which I think holds true, which is that the underdogs get one chance at a game pretty much, and that's in the first game, and then in the second game. They don't get a chance, and I think that's, I think that was pretty much the United view that okay, we've we've learned about them. We will get the job done this time. And 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 funny enough, if you recall the the replay, um, Palace played in a, it, in a totally different way almost. That they became very very aggressive in that game. That they, they, they there was some. I mean, Les Seeley came in for Jim Layton as as we should mention, uh, and they decided they were going to dish out the treatment 
to, and presumably that they might have thought they were playing against Jim Layton again, we're going to rough him up. But because it was Les, they decided to rough up Les. And uh, the the referee, um, Alan Gunn, I believe is his name, and that's how it's pronounced, uh, it was uh, <laughs> uh, Alex Ferguson was not happy with his refereeing of the game. But anyway, Lee Martin got the job done. And if you recall that goal, uh, my, my memory of the celebration when Lee Martin scores that goal, remember the celebration where the players all just lie on him in this sort of orgiastic scene of relief <laughs> and celebration. Well, it's a fantastic pass from Neil Webb. It it's is fantastic. I mean, a, a, a really yeah, good goal in a poor game. Oh, it was an awful good match. Good straight finish. Palace yeah. just did not show up again, did they? Mm. Um, but a great, a great finish from, from a defender. I know it's a very, very cliche thing to say, but this was 1990. I mean, we were still really... The, the vibe of the 80s were there. So, so a defender finishing like that was, yeah, uh, yeah. was quite and, and, something. And Lee Martin was, I suppose, the last remnant uh, of the original Fergus Fleshlings, which was a group of players that had come through, essentially under Ron Atkinson's uh, under youth team and then made their way through. Um, this is what often happens, isn't it? When a manager's having problems, one of the ways to offset the problems is to introduce quite a few young players and talk about the future. And I think that's what Ferguson did in those sort of dark months of 88 and 89. And by that point... And also point, as a way of, of sort of casting the blame back on Atkinson because Atkinson pretty much never introduced the youth player. No. So it was Fergie's way of going, I'm doing it differently, but you will have to wait. Yeah, well, the only one that he had introduced was, was of course, Mark Hughes, who had then been sold on. But yeah, and um, Lee Martin was, I suppose, the last of that breed. And then, as we know, they would be superseded by... A distinctly superior generation. Um, yeah. If it could, I, can I spare a word for for, for Jim Layton? Please do, please do. Um, and and I'm going to, uh, but the view of this is from someone called uh, Alex Ferguson, uh, and uh, about his dropping of Jim for the replay, which was, you know, as I said, a lot of people have talked about that. Is it one, including myself, about how this was a betrayal of someone he'd worked with and his ruthlessness. Um, Sir Alex has never regretted that decision. Uh, we never expected he would do. Uh, but in his Managing My Life, the book that he wrote with uh, the late Hugh McIlvanny, uh, he says, um, The headlines next morning were varied with the most severe accusing me of betraying Leighton. That allegation has hung in the air over the years. In a way, Leighton has been glorified. I think we know the way this is going. Uh, <laughs> my view of the affair is very different. I have something to ask those who see Jim as a victim and me as a villain, if we had lost the cup file and I'd lost my job, would Jim have felt guilty? Would he have, would he have apologised? I think the answer in both instances is no. To put it bluntly, I believe Jim was selfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, do you know what? Wow. When, I watched, when, I was, when I was watching the... Uh, the highlights of this game back. I, uh, that is the one thing that struck me was that you selfish git, Leighton. How <laughs> dare you? How bloody dare you? I mean, we, but by the way, we should say, um, of course, Jim Leighton, MBE. Yes. You know, so so it didn't end badly. The, the, the Jim Leighton. Well, story. yeah, it's a great redemption story. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It is. And, and played for Scotland until ninety-eight World Cup. Yeah, he was there and played for Aberdeen until what two thousand? I think he retired. When he was about forty-two, something like yeah. that. No thanks to Alex Ferguson. Absolutely zero thanks uh, <laughs> to, to, to Ferguson. Of two other things I think it's worth touching on. Mm. So one is, 
United became the first team to win the FA Cup, having been drawn away in every round. Yes. Although in 1948, they'd also won the FA Cup without playing a game at Old Trafford, uh, because Old Trafford still suffered yeah. uh, bomb damage, so they had to play games at Main Road and, and elsewhere. And uh, I, I suppose we can make this a little quiz question. There we go. But on the way to the Forest game, the third round game, and this puts in context just where United were at this stage, uh, Fergie saw the bookmakers the price that United were to win the FA Cup that season and put some money on. And do you know what odds he got? I reckon he probably got about 12 to 1. 20, 25 to 1. Well, I split the difference. 16 to 1. Wow. Imagine that. 16 to 1 to win... Win the United to win the FA Cup. Yeah, for a trophy that United would be targeting as well. Yeah. Because and the, the league was well we say, done. Twice in the previous seven years. Yeah. Incredible. And it was Man United who were feeling glad all over at the end. Oh, well done. <laughs> John, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure talking to you about, uh, well, these games, I suppose, but particularly the first one. Yeah, uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Marcus. Mm, nice one. Well, for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk everybody and for myself and Jonathan see you next time for another great game from the history of football